2: You know, I play that at the top of every hour of this broadcast, every day. And uh, some days it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. It's the start to the, to the show or start to the hour. Some days you just listen to it a little more closely than others. Some days it just really strikes you. And some days you really miss the sound of that man's voice. You miss the great communicator. And that message is something that I, I'm going to keep delivering to you as a treat every single day. I hope you really, really appreciate what it is. Not appreciate me, appreciate President Reagan for those words and for the... Uh, for the guidance and the leadership. All right, It's uh, 10 minutes after 10 o'clock on this free-for-all Friday, the 17th morning of the 5th month of the year of our Lord, 2019. I told you we were going to talk about the President's immigration proposals. Um, interesting, to say the least. Some very good with it, some I have a few questions about, and some I just wonder how he expects to get that past the Democrats in the House of Representatives. Joining us now to talk about it is the President of Right-Turn Strategies. He was in the briefing uh, on uh, Wednesday and uh, was also a media surrogate for the trump campaign in 2016 his name is chris Barone. i'm sorry chris baron or Barone? i never did get the pronunciation chris my apologies chris can you hear me yep i can hear a, you can we pot chris up there okay there, there we didn't have you pot it up i don't think i'm sorry about that is it baron or baron
3: it's baron if you say baron it'll make me think i'm french
2: <laughs> well what i thought what i thought was maybe you were uh, uh on uh everybody loves raymond because weren't they the barones i think that's what that's the that i think alert. so yeah yeah they were the Barons. <laughs> anyway chris barron is the president of right turn strategies and again he was there at the briefing uh as the president laid out his immigration proposal thanks for coming on chris we do appreciate it
3: absolutely happy to be on all right, so uh, you know i
2: i 've been reading this and following this and looking at some other people 's a- analysis of this, and there 's a lot to like in what the uh, the President is proposing here, particularly as it pertains to merit based uh, immigration uh, reform. I-, I did not see anything specifically, and tell me if I missed it that said we are eliminating. Things like the visa diversity lottery and the chain migration programs that we have, you know, that have, that have led to uh, some of the negative situations we have in this country right now as it pertains to immigration. I cannot believe anybody would still want to draw names out of a hat from anywhere in the world, any country in the world, including those that are, let's say, less than favorable to the United States and just say, yep, you're in, you're in, you're in based on randomness. No. Is that gone? Yep. No.
3: That is gone. The diversity lottery will be gone. It's one of the reasons why the president is putting this proposal forward, because we think it is fundamentally an insane way to pick who comes into your country by random lottery. Yeah. You know, most other countries, Canada, Australia, most of the countries in the Western world use a merit based system. I mean, look, we ought to have an immigration system that works for American workers, that, may, that works for the American economy. That will actually grow our economy, create jobs, you know, increase the uh, the wealth of the American people. And the way we do that is to have a merit-based economy, not a random lottery. And by the way, the Trump administration under this proposal would be limiting the definition of family to immediate nuclear family. Yeah. So you know, your spouse and your children obviously a priority, but you shouldn't be able to come here and then bring your fourth and fifth cousin. That shouldn't be the way that this works, and you know this is a system that hasn't been overhauled in more than five decades. Uh, and I think it is a really uh, you know bold proposal by the president to start laying out what we're for as conservatives. Because I think far too often the left points us points that us and just says, "Well, they're just against stuff. And so I think it's really strong for the president to come out and say, "This is what we're for." These are the reforms we need to make. And by the way, this is what the rest of the civilized world is doing.
2: You know, I, I agree, uh, we need, we do need that, that positive message. This is what we're for, but I'm not gonna stop saying what we're against either because it's important. In fact, it's critical, and I think sometimes it hits people square between the eyes more than what we're for by saying we're against the flow of drugs that continue across that border. We're against the gang members that use that border. We're against the, uh, uh, child trafficking, the human trafficking. We're against, uh, uh, depressed wages because of unskilled workers coming in here and taking jobs away from low-skilled American workers. I mean, we gotta tell, those are, the, those oh, are problems, no. and, and I don't wanna, no, I want to continue to shout the problems in addition to the solutions because again, I think people need to hear them.:
3: Oh, no, you're absolutely right. And look, the president's not going to stop talking about those issues. You know, when I was at the White House for this briefing, I mean the president talked about you know the stopping the flow of drugs across this border, stopping MS13, about you know, sending people back who are here illegally prioritizing sending back criminals who are here illegally. Like, he's not going to stop talking about that. He's not going to stop talking about the wall. But the fact is is that immigration is a multifaceted, you know, area. And this is an area of the law that we haven't been focused on. And look, we're going to continue to fight for the wall. And this president's not going to stop until our border is secure. And he's committed to that. But at the same time, we have to fix this broken system. We can't continue to have a system that allows low-wage workers to come to this country to compete with the most vulnerable working-class Americans. We ought to have an immigration system that makes sense. And by the way, under this system, it will prioritize people who speak English and who have the ability to get a job and lower, uh, younger individuals over older individuals. Look, we, we don't need the... Tell me how that part is
2: going to work, Chris, in- if I may. Chris, if I may, tell me about that part. I've, I'm looking at the White House website right now, and they uh, released uh, five uh, m- m- most important points from the president's speech and from this proposal. And the third is, modernize the dysfunctional legal immigration process by increasing the number of legal immigrants selected based on skill or merit from 12% to 57%. Tell me how that's going to work work when what we are constantly told by the left as a reason why we shouldn't crack down on the uh, uh, on the uh, uh, illegal immigration is because these people are coming over here and doing those jobs that Americans won't do. They're the ones who are going to work in the fields. They're going to pick the, the the lettuce, and they're going to do this, that, and the other, and and, and if Americans do it, they're going to demand $20 an hour, and your BLT is going to be you know nineteen ninety five now, and all that stuff they tell us. I love the idea. Don't get me wrong. I love the idea of merit-based. This is what it should be, but they're going to say, okay, what about all of those jobs that are being done by, uh, uh, you know, migrant farm workers who are no longer going to be allowed to come here?
3: Well, look, it, it doesn't, like, this is not dealing with uh, with temporary workers. Temporary workers is, is a separate issue. But what it will do is say, look, we're not going to import cheap labor into this country to undercut the salaries of working-class Americans. And at some point, I think as Americans... We have to value our working class people. And we have to say, you know, if that, if that means that my BLT is going to be a quarter more expensive because we're not going to continue to, to, to bring in cheap labor that undercuts American workers, then I think we need to say, guess what? I'm willing to pay the extra quarter for my BLT. You know, I, I think, I think we have to decide as Americans where our values are and, and when will we stand up for working-class Americans? And I think at the end of the day, it's what the Democratic Party, like the biggest betrayal for Democrats is their betrayal of working-class Americans. I mean, they have have prioritized bringing in cheap labor that undercuts working-class Americans, that drives down wages for working-class Americans, that takes jobs away from working-class Americans. And they've done so because they think that this is a political winner for them. And, and I frankly think that it is, you know, it's know—it's—it's disgusting. And look, the president's system, it's going to be a point system, the, the exact, you know, how it's going to work hasn't been uh, fleshed out yet, but it's going to be a point system that you'll get points for things like, you know, the ability, you know, having a college degree. Look, we have people who come to this country and go to some of our finest colleges and universities and then can't stay here. They, they, they can't immigrate here, so they go back to the countries where they're from, taking the, the degree from the great schools that they've gone to in our country. And a lot of these people are going and starting companies and employing people that compete with American companies when they should have done that yeah. right here. And it's outrageous to think that we're bringing people to this country who don't speak English, who have absolutely no you know ability to get a job, who are going to be a drain on our social services, and at the same time telling those people who could be job creators, and who have come here and have you know college degrees or post college degrees? Well, we you have to go home. It yeah. truly there's something that matter with the system.
2: Yeah, I completely concur. We're talking to Chris Barron, the president of Right Turn Strategies, about the president's uh, immigration overhaul proposal. Um, I want to talk about the second one the White House identified, and that is the asylum process, restoring integrity to the America's broken asylum process by expediting relief for legitimate uh, asylum seekers and sending those who abuse the system home. I think we've seen all kinds of numbers, some 95 to 97 percent of those, especially in these caravans, who are coming over here and saying asylum, asylum, asylum are full of it. They're not being persecuted for anything. They're just coming here for the economic opportunity. How are we going to expedite? Did the president get specific? How are we going to expedite, first of all, determining who's legitimate and who isn't with their claim? And then when we realize they're not legitimate, they're being booted. Um, Lindsey Graham suggested, you know, 500 more judges being down there to try to uh, process these a lot faster. Did the president get specific on how we're going to change that asylum process?
3: Yeah, look, we, we, we have to change the asylum process to be able to tell the legitimate asylum seekers from the people who are coming here and lodging frivolous claims because they know that it means that they will immediately be granted entry to this country and will be able to stay here during the duration of their their claim. And so, my understanding is that the and president really more than that. that they, most
2: of them stay here for the duration of their lives. They're never heard from right, again. They're they, not coming. They they're never, not even don't, showing don't, up.
3: Yeah. they don't even show up for their court cases. So right. I, the you know, the president is talking about having those determinations made at the border and that those initial determinations are. That if, if if the determination is that you don't have a a, a legitimate claim, you're going home. You know that those that, that determination needs to be made up front. Once people are here in this country, once they're part of, but well, who the, gets to
2: make those the, determinations? Those what, what what I'm what I'm asking because I think you know there have been a few different people who have suggested this, and I uh, 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 the idea of training, literally training, and quote unquote licensing border patrol agents. Uh, and uh, no, to no. to to determine Absolutely. the status of a, of an asylum claim on the spot rather than you know waiting for for three years for a quote unquote you know asylum judge to hear this, but training those individuals and if they on their own merit determine that there is no basis for an asylum claim here, up turn around and march them in the other direction
3: yeah and look the president uh, the president has said that we need to get away from this system that is going to start burdening the courts one, we don't have the judges currently to handle. The asylum claims. We simply don't. The backlog is insane. Secondly, it would require, the president said something like 25,000 judges actually to service all of the the outstanding claims. That's not going to happen. That's not realistic. So we need to move away from having that initial determination made by a a judge. Look, if if we can easily fare it out at the border, that somebody is actually does not have a, a, a real asylum claim under the law, that it's clear-cut, then they shouldn't be here, and they shouldn't be backlogging our system. And by the way, it's truly insulting to the people who have legitimate asylum, asylum claims, who are literally coming here trying to flee persecution, that their claims are getting backlogged because a whole bunch of people have been told to come here and simply say they're seeking asylum, Because that automatically gets them the green light into our country.
2: Chris, I've got to take a break here, but can you hang with me? Because I want to ask you what we're going to do with the 11 to 20 million that are already here. Because that's what the left is going to demand is amnesty for any of these programs to be put forth. I'm going to get your thoughts on that as we continue. Chris Barron, president of Right Turn Strategies. He was uh, on the Trump team uh, 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 back in 2016 on the campaign. He was in the briefing uh, when the president laid this all out. And we'll get back with him in a moment on AM 1420 News. In the I only have about three minutes left with my guest, so let's dive right back in here with Chris Barron, uh, president of Right Turn Strategies, talking about the president's proposal for immigration and immigration overhaul. You know, even if this were to be uh, 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 greenlit by the Senate, you know full well that Nancy Pelosi's uh, House, Chris, is going to want all kinds of things to get any of these things approved by their membership, their caucus, and that is going to include not only DACA, but probably some sort of amnesty and path to citizenship for anywhere between 12 and 20 million illegals who are already here. How's the president plan to deal with that?
3: Uh, By winning re-election in 2020 and taking the House back. And, And he said it yesterday in the Rose Garden, uh, look, I don't think any of us are, 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 are uh, delusional about uh, what the Democrats are doing now. The fact is they're not interested in fixing this broken immigration system. Uh, they think this is a political winner for them, and they're going to continue uh, to use it as a political wedge issue. Uh, the reality is is that if we want meaningful immigration reform, if we want to make sure uh, that we do something about the, the illegals who are here currently, Uh, If we want to make sure we don't end up with amnesty, we got to make sure we reelect the president in 2020 and return a Republican House.
2: You know that's a great answer, and we really do need to do that. But even when we had the Republican House, you saw what the obstacles that we faced. Um, we couldn't get this done. You know, we should have been able to. You Remember, the, the Democrats are just so duplicitous and so deceptive. They said they want to, you know, in order for any kind of a wall or any kind of other any of the other president's priorities, we want legalization for the DACA kids. So President Trump said, not only your seven hundred thousand DACA kids, I'll bump it to one point eight million, including those who are eligible to register for DACA and didn't. Uh, I'll give you. I'll give you almost. You know, three times as many, and they said, uh, "No." So that's no, the definitely. problem here. And, you know, and even when we have the majority, we're unable to get it done because we just didn't have enough people committed to the vision that the president had in the House.
3: Well, and that's why that's why we need to make sure that the Republicans who are going to Washington are going to work side by side with this president. I mean, look, the the truth is is I blame a lot of what happened in the last Congress on Paul Ryan. The fact is, is he did not show the political fortitude to lead on issues like this. He got the tax cut through, and that was great. But the reality is is that we should have been able to do something on immigration. And we need leadership in Washington from the Republican Party that is committed to these conservative values and are going to be there to be allies of this president, not be impediments.
2: I love the message. I love the message. I just hope there's a, a method to uh, to get this done. But first of all, you're right. In order for this to get done, he's going to have to be reelected because it's not going to get finished in the next 18 months. It's going to take time after that when we do have uh, the majority back, and hopefully it's a stronger majority with stronger leadership in the House than we had the last time around. But the president is on the right track here. It's just a matter of getting all of the support he needs from the uh, uh, legislative side. Chris Barron, thank you so much. Great ta- talking to you. I hope we can chat again.
3: It would be great. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Chris Barron, president of Right Turn Strategies. He's got the president's trust. He was uh, on Team uh, Trump uh, on the campaign back in uh, 2016, and obviously since he was in the briefing as the president gave this information out uh, on Wednesday, he's obviously still uh, an insider there. So uh, he'll be a great resource to hear from as we move forward. Right now it's 1030. Let's hear from news and uh, come back and take your phone calls. we got another 30 minutes of free-for-all Friday left right here on AM 1420, The Answer. every time i hear that start to this song uh i just get nostalgic i really do i got it was uh it was one of my favorite concerts i ever went to yes i did i don't want to hear it don't judge me i went to tears for fears in 1985 i think it was was uh, When this song was out and that album was out, I think I have two or three of their albums. Well, not albums anymore, I suppose, but they're on my phone somewhere in my playlist. Uh, I love it. What can I say? I'm a child of the 80s. My musical interests were formed in the 70s when I was a real child and in the 80s when I was in high school and college. So uh, that's just the way it sticks with me. I hear that song and it just uh, just takes me back. Uh, all right. I got a text message here. I normally don't read texts on the air because normally, uh, people who have my cell phone number, uh, um, uh, you know, are going to find another way to get on the air. Most people who are just regular listeners don't have my cell phone number. But, uh, anyway, uh, David Arredondo has my cell phone number. David is the, um, uh, vice chair of the Republican party in Lorraine County, which happens to be my county of residence. Uh, David's a good man. And, uh, David said two things. Law has to be changed to require asylum to be applied for at American embassies and consulates. Two, for amnesty, applicants must return to their home countries with the necessary documents to apply for a visa. Same as all others who want entry to America. All legal immigrants need to do this before entry to the United States. So he's saying basically... Um, uh, for asylum, the law has to be changed. You don't apply in the United States when you've already crashed our border or caravanned up to a port of entry. No, 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 no. do doesn't work that way. You apply for asylum at an American embassy or consulate in your home country. Completely agree. And then the second part again, let me read it again. For amnesty, David texts, applicants must return to their home country. So leave the United States right now if you're here with the necessary documents to apply for a visa, same as all others who want entry into the United States. All legal immigrants need to do this before entry to the USA. My question, David didn't address on this, though, is do they go to the back of the line? If you've been living in the United States illegally for a year or two years or ten years, I don't care, and you want amnesty, in other words, you want to be able to stay here, you have to leave here and then file the necessary documents for the necessary documents to apply for a visa, same as anybody else who's trying to come here for the first time. Okay. But we all know that there's a backlog on, backlog on that too. Do those who came here illegally and now want amnesty when they go back to their home countries, do they get in a queue behind those who are waiting for legal permission to come here by getting a visa? Or do they just get it automatically? Since they were already here, they get to kind of jump to the front of the line, get their, you know, they got their docs, they get their visa, and they come back and get their amnesty. That's a real big question, but David, I do appreciate that always uh good thoughts coming from David erdonda. uh Richard is in Lorraine County. I don't know where, but he's in this county someplace and Richard, you're on the air. Good morning, go ahead,
4: sir. Oh, good morning. thanks for having me on pleasure i've been I've been following the uh <clears throat> the coverage of uh, the overland college uh Gibson trial. it's, it's so have I. rather interesting.
2: Yeah, so have I. What are your thoughts?
4: It's a well, big you tell deal. me your thoughts
2: first, Richard. You tell me your thoughts first, since you've been covering well, it, and uh, well, let everybody know what's going on.
4: Well, I I wish I lived closer to Oberlin. I would certainly uh, get there and, and support them. I understand they've been hurting, uh, and uh, I, I think they they got a raw deal. And when a uh, a big entity uh, comes and slams against you, you're you're in a world of hurt. And I, I hope they're able to get justice and uh, Gibson's—that is, you know—that uh, they deserve. I, I think they've been wronged. Uh, I've been, you know, following it since uh, since the you know the cover. Twenty sixteen, when it happened. You remember yeah, what it day
2: it was that everything happened, right? You remember when the uh, the theft of the uh, wine and uh, the beating and everything that happened. You remember when that was? Shh.
4: Oh, I can't remember what month that was. I'm sorry. You should,
2: you should because it was very, very, very interesting, um, the timing of all of this. It happened the day after Donald Trump was elected president of the United States.
4: Oh, you're right. Right. Which
2: is why a lot of people felt like the, uh, you know, the, the far left, uh, you know, progressive movement at the People's Republic of Oberlin College, um, you know, they're saying that set them off. That was as much as anything else. They were just like, oh my God, Donald Trump just won the presidency. And now, you know, Gibson's is arresting, you know, three of our, or having arrested three of our black students for stealing. And let's, you know, they weren't going to have that. And that's when they started their false accusations of racism. The university, the students, uh, the dean, uh, and all those who are currently being, you know, uh, exposed for what they did during this trial. So uh, I remember it very much because of that. And uh, for those who don't know what you and I are talking about, Richard, you know, uh, <clears throat> Black Oberlin College student went in with two of his, uh, uh, black female friends and, uh, he tried to buy a bottle of wine with a fake ID while also trying to steal two bottles of wine they had under his jacket. Well, he got busted by the, uh, uh, the shop owner who was, or not the shop owner, the worker who was the son of the shop owner, Alan Gibson, who tried to call the police on him. The guy smacked the phone out of his hand and into his face and actually left a mark on his face and tried to leave. Alan Gibson legally and lawfully tried to detain him until the police would arrive, and instead he was beaten up by both the uh, individual who was stealing the wine and his two female accomplices. Police arrived to see all three of them pounding on him while he was on the ground. And Oberlin College's response to Gibson's trying to press charges against these individuals are, you can't do that, you racially profiled them, that's how you knew he was stealing, you profiled him and found out, and Gibson's is racist. They made up flyers. Gibson's pulled them. And, and Richard, I apologize for taking up all of your phone call time. No,
4: I just please. To people the uh, that's why I called you. I wanted your <laughs> yeah. your, your your take on this
2: yeah let me let me just kind of reset the story there and then I'll give you the, the last word on our, our chat here but basically the university cancelled their long standing order with Gibson's to provide pastries and bagels and donuts and this and that and the other from the college uh, to the college from the from the bakery uh, they uh, printed flyers that were distributed to students to hand uh, to people as they protested outside Gibson's they shut uh, uh tried to shut them down and i did what I think a lot of people would do. I used the power of this microphone to organize a cash mob along with some good, good people. My friend Kristen Wellington helped organize this thing. I was kind of the publicity part of it. But we uh, we sent as many people. People came from all over the state. They came from all over the state. I remember one couple drove in from Pittsburgh to shop and buy at Gibson's because they were so outraged at what was going on with Oberlin. But despite the support we gave them, uh, the college and their 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 boycott of the store has had just a terrible effect, and they have lost up to fifty percent of the revenues that they used to make. And financially, they're in a very very uh, tumultuous situation right now, which is what led to their lawsuit.
4: Yeah, I, well, I I just uh, another thing that that uh, it, it seemed to catch my eye. It, it's I, I think this is a big deal, and it seems other than perhaps. Chronicle, Telegram—that's the only coverage I'm seeing. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you know, I don't know—is
2: Cleve, a Cleveland Plain Dealer not out there covering this story?
4: You know, I—I I, I couldn't tell you, but I'm not seeing on any—you know—three, five, or eight or nineteen. Yeah, you know, you know nothing that's about a- that.
2: And what's interesting is they were there. The TV stations were there when it all went down. When the protests were mm-hmm. happening, they were covering the, you know, the scene outside and, and talking to people and everything else. It's really interesting that now that, you know, there's a lawsuit and it's being, uh, played out at, uh, the the, uh, the court in an area, um, that they're not there. I don't understand. Tucker Carlson had a piece of it. Tucker Carlson had on, uh, uh I think one of the attorneys representing Gibson's a few nights ago. Uh, oh, darn I, I
4: missed that. that.
2: Yeah, but, but, uh, not nearly as much local, uh, you're right, uh, is as one would think from Cleveland, given the, uh, you know, given the high profile nature of what was going on here with all of the sexy news elements of this, you know, uh, accusations of racism and, and all kinds of other things from the, uh, uh, from the, uh, far left Oberlin College. But anyway, Richard, I'm glad you called up to bring it up. Uh, thanks very much. And if you've got anything else on this as that trial plays out that you want to add, pl- please call me back. All right, my man?
4: Okay, thanks, Bob. Have a wonderful weekend.
2: You do the same. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I've been following this very closely as well through the uh, local newspaper in Elyria. Um, but um, uh, in all seriousness, uh, I have not seen anything on the TV stations in Cleveland, uh, you know, 3, 5, or 8, or 19. I, I really haven't. I don't know why. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe they're doing it and I'm missing it. And if you are, I apologize. Anybody listening, I've got media friends at work at almost all of these stations. If you're covering it and I'm and I missed it, then I apologize. But why aren't you? I mean, this is a very, very blatant case of discrimination against a business. And by the way, this isn't, this isn't progressive versus conservative. All right. This isn't one of those things where the communist, uh, uh, Oberlin College and I, you know, we kind of jokingly refer to it as the, as the, uh, people's republic thereof, Oberlin. Um, we know who they are and we know what they are and we know how they operate. Um, it's been chronicled for a very, very long time that they are doing this is not a surprise. But the, the business that they're doing it to is a surprise because Gibson's, good, good people, I think can be described best as being some of the most progressive in Lorraine County. The Gibson family has owned Gibson's Bakery since the 1800s. And they have been out in front of of civil rights for everybody, for women, for minorities, for a long time, for a long time. Um, and I've told those stories too. When this was all going on, I've talked to Rick Gibson. Uh, I've talked to Alan Gibson, uh, uh, who's ninety something now, uh, who's uh, you know who still spends twelve hours a day at that store because it's just it's been his life, especially since his wife passed. David Gibson, his son, and then Alan, the younger Alan, the, the grandson, uh, who was involved in the altercation there. Um, these are just really, really good people who have always reached out to virtually everybody. And the idea that they would be called racist after so many years and decades of, of just wonderful, wonderful relationships with, uh, you know, everyone in Oberlin, not just the African American community, but virtually everybody. It's, it's a, such a shame that they would choose to take on an organization like this all in defense of three punks who, by the way, ended up being charged, they pled guilty and had to read into the record statements indicating that they do not believe that they were racially profiled or that race had anything to do with their attempted shoplifting and their subsequent assault of the the store clerk. Think about that. They have had acknowledged for the record that they don't think it was, and yet Oberlin continued their ridiculous, uh, for a long period of time, boycott and protest, claiming that Gibson's was racist. And uh, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. And they've lost, like I said, a lot of money. They've had a lot of heartache over this. Uh, Alan Gibson, the fact that he and his family would be referred to as racist after their decades and decades and decades, literally going back into... Uh, the 1800s. Um, it, it's just it's just appalling, and and I hope they are able to take Oberlin College for everything that they are worth, <sighs> which wouldn't be very much if you ask me, because I think Oberlin College is worthless. Uh, Jim in West Park, you're happy, on the air. Go ahead, Jim.
5: Happy Free Free Fall Friday. Yes, no sir. The Dem- uh, there has been nothing in the paper about that story, but I got like three or four articles here that nobody's talking about. The global warming is now due to agriculture. So, what are we supposed to do? Stop making food? And then you got the fires out west are due to Pacific gas and electric lines that sagged and got into brush. First Energy, I did the 140 kV line up here in Northeast Ohio. And when we had the blackout, uh, First Energy was sued $500 million. So then uh, we got the, the PBS story in the gaze, of uh, Franklin Graham with Mr. Ratburn. And Nancy Pelosi uh, can, can say country really good now. And then we have the name calling. We want to know, out here in West Park, we want to know what your uh, fatitious name was. Mine was Roach and living in America. And when I was overseas, it was slippery. And I would like to say that the, that Donald Trump is the Lone Ranger, Kim cause he's <laughs> always fighting for, uh, the truth, justice, and these rats in the cities was always trying to pin a, pin a crime on him until, uh, Tonto got him out of prison to prove his innocence. Because when we were kids, the Christian community put the fear of government in us. So thank you very much for taking my call, Bob.
2: You got a gym in West Park free for all Friday indeed. You never know where you're going to go or what you're going to get, but that's what we got. Ten we're going to time out of here for the final time. I still have a few minutes left for a couple more phone calls on the other side of the traffic if you want to make them, but you got it dial now, 216 or 888-281-1110. Final segment of the week coming up right here on the 1420 The Answer. 10 53, the final segment of the broadcast. Final segment of the week, as a matter of fact. Hopefully, you've got a good weekend plan. I want to share with you uh, something that I am very, very passionate about, if I may, and I want to talk about uh, the Alliance Defending Freedom again. I told you about this uh, yesterday, and I'm going to continue to tell you about this because we are partnering with this very important organization. Uh, I'm privileged to be in partnership with them. The Alliance Defending Freedom is on the front lines, fighting for your freedoms in a number of ways. Here's Bob uh, Bob Trent, rather, to tell you more about those battles.
6: The Washington state government is forcing churches to pay for abortion in their health care plans or face fines and criminal penalties, including jail time. Hi, I'm Bob Trent, and this is your Freedom Minute. Pastor Jay and Sandy of Cedar Park Church in Washington are dedicated to protecting the lives of the unborn, serving women, aiding pregnancy centers, and fostering a life-affirming community. But now the state of Washington is determined to keep Cedar Park from living out its pro-life mission by forcing the church to pay for abortion in its health care plan under threats of fines and even jail time. But thanks to your support, Alliance Defending Freedom is suing the government and asking Washington to allow it and other organizations to live out their pro-life mission. We can't sit by and watch as the government takes away our freedoms. When we stand together, we can win. Would you help us protect your freedoms? Visit yourfreedomfund.org. That's yourfreedomfund.org.
2: Yeah, if you didn't catch that, the most important part of what you just heard there from Bob Trent uh, is as he to- told the story about the church and uh, you know being forced to provide abortion and and uh, abortifacient services and birth control services and so on and so forth. The most important line that you just heard there was: "Thanks to your help, we have sued the state of Washington on behalf of this church." That's the most important part. They need your help. If you would like to give to the Freedom Fund to help defend your freedom and that of others and provide the resources needed to fight these critical court battles with ADF, please call 800-691-8969, 800-691-8969, uh, or the website, the website again, is freedomfund.org. It is really, really that important. All right, um, I want to share one other thought with you here. I spent a great deal of time over two days on the program this week. Talking about the abortion battles uh, that are going on around the country. I've kind of uh, avoided it today because, well, I left it up to you to what we did today for the most part because of uh, Free For All Friday. But uh, because of what happened this week, obviously, over the last weekend, Georgia Governor Brian uh, Kemp signed the fetal heartbeat law in uh, Georgia which mirrors, essentially, our law that Governor DeWine signed here in the state of Ohio. Then, of course, we know what happened with Alabama, the most restrictive, uh, described by most people as the most restrictive new abortion law, <laughs> excuse me, among the states that are currently doing this. Also yesterday, then, Missouri came out with their eight-week law, no abortions after eight weeks, and we know where this has gone. It's kind of touched on a number of uh, very important issues. And the one thing that seems to be the commonality is a discussion and a disagreement over uh, the exceptions to uh, the the laws by uh, by rape and incest. There is an article that I've read that, and i and I spent two days talking about this with you because I am conflicted. While I understand the goal, particularly in the Alabama law, is to establish, contrary to Roe versus Wade, which says that a baby, a fetus, is not a person; it doesn't deserve personhood status. The goal here with the Alabama in particular is to establish that, yes, it is. It's a person. And each person has his own or his or her own rights. And thus, the woman, the mother can't say it's my body, my choice. We're talking about another person's body here that has a say in this as well. All right? But what about, so so the point is in in the cases of rape and incest, if, if you establish that the fetus is a person, then you can't allow an exception because you're essentially saying because something bad happened to one person, we can murder another person. Because of a terrible event like rape or incest, an incestual attack, um, th- that that a person can be killed for that who had nothing to do with it. That's the reason it's there. But that has been the discussion, and I've been torn over this for you know the last few days. And an article that I read on Clash Daily of all places, which is kind of a funny conservative website, Put together three flaws in the. A uh, No. Can you hear me? Are we okay? Okay. Somebody told me we got a glitch there. That you uh, must force a, a young, you know, victim of a of a crime like that to carry the baby to term. That rape and incest has to have the exceptions in these laws. Three reasons why that is a flawed argument. One. The pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute's own study about the key reasons for abortion, and 85% of the answers were lifestyle convenience. Less than 1% cited rape. Less than half of 1%. Abortion activists prominently use the argument of rape and incest to bolster their position that abortion must be, remain legal for that reason and that reason alone. Number two, abortion lets rapists get away with their crime. What more conclusive evidence could there be to prove responsibility for the crime of rape than a paternity test with a baby uh, and then the rapist father of that child? Abortion allows them to get away with it. And number three, the only reason to be pro-life. Simply put, the unborn baby is either a person or he or she is not, as i kind of described already. If he is a, a person, every right that you and I enjoy should apply to that person as well. If he is not, then none of the other arguments really matter either. So really, some clarity provided there, I thought, by Clash Daily. And that's something, if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you'll read because I will share this story. Uh, France Radio is where you can find me on Twitter and on Facebook. All right, that's it. That's all the time that we've got. I'm going to get out now so that Mike Gallagher can slide on in. And uh, then uh, make sure you come back with us on Monday morning for the next edition of the Bob France Authority. Until then, have a wonderful, safe, and blessed weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Enjoy
0: the silence.